Before I begin the message tonight, I just want to remind you that what I'm going to tell you tonight is not something that I've invented in my mind. Um, What I'm preaching this evening has been the position of churches for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's only in the last um, maybe 100 years or so, even less than that really, probably in the last 50 years, that churches, preachers have been afraid to preach the kind of things that I'm going to tell you about tonight, and these truths are not taught anymore. But I would encourage you, if you don't think that I'm telling you the straight of things, that you pick up some old commentaries of days gone by and see what preachers were preaching, what they believed, and how serious they thought that these certain matters were. I want you to open your Bibles now to Revelation chapter 17, and we're in part number two of the message I began a couple of weeks ago, the rise of ecclesiastical Babylon. And our subject is the religious system of the Antichrist. And it's the sinister plan that he will put in place to use as a stepping stone to solidify his power over the governments of the world. Chapter 17 in Revelation is an interlude in our study. Uh, We ended the 16th chapter, and we were speaking of the final judgments that God was going to bring upon the earth. And these are the judgments that will take place just prior to the beginning of Christ's millennial reign upon the earth. And chapter 16 actually brought us right up to the brink of Armageddon. But we didn't quite get there. Instead, we come to chapter 17, and the the story drops back to the beginning of the tribulation. Seven and a half years earlier than where we ended chapter 16, we're back at the beginning of the tribulation, and we see the religious system, the rise of this religious system that helps the Antichrist come to power. And then by the end of this chapter, the end of chapter 17, we see how this religious system has outlived its usefulness to the Antichrist. And so in the form that it's in, that we're going to talk about tonight, that will be destroyed. So we start this evening with verse number 1 of chapter 17, and we're going to try to catch up a little bit in the first part of the message with what we studied the last time, and then we'll go on to something new. But if you look in Revelation 17, verse number 1, it says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come up hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters." with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration." Our key verse is verse number 5. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we're gathered here today, tonight, to speak your word. And we ask you, Lord, that you'd open up the hearts of hearers. And though things that we say are difficult for the flesh, 
They're difficult for many people today who think that nobody's religion should be criticized, and yet we don't do it with a critical spirit at all, but we do it to reveal the truth of your word. So, Lord, help us to do that. Even the apostles did it, and as we taught this morning that Jesus did it. There will arise false prophets, and we have to be aware of that. Bless us in this message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. We're speaking of ecclesiastical Babylon. And for those of you that aren't familiar with that terminology, ecclesiology means related to the church. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia. That's the way it's translated most times in our King James Version is as church. So what we're speaking of here is a religious empire. And there are actually two designations for the empire of the Antichrist. One side of it is ecclesiastical Babylon, and the other side of it is political Babylon. And those two entities are very closely intertwined, and they're joined into this one kingdom that's ruled by the Antichrist. When political Babylon reaches the zenith of its power in the middle of the tribulation period, then it won't any longer need ecclesiastical Babylon. And so uh, the political side of this will reach up and bite the hand that fed it, And ecclesiastical Babylon in this particular form will be destroyed. And then when we come to the end of the tribulation, uh, political Babylon as well is destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon. So this is the religious system that we're speaking of that's in power at the beginning of the tribulation. And I, I think it's really a fascinating tale because the Bible refers to it as Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. And the name is called Babylon because ancient Babylon was the original apostate religion. Babylon is the first place where men began to rebel against the true God, Jehovah God. So we looked in our first lesson back into history, and we called uh, the, the history of this the preparation for the Roman church. This is where all of apostate religion got its start. And during the tribulation period, uh, the old apostate religion will rise up again. It will be a force to be reckoned with. And at the head of all this will be the Roman Catholic Church. Now, all other churches will have a part of it because we have one great big huge conglomeration. But the ringleader of this is Roman Catholicism. And the history of Roman Catholicism has been tied to the history of Babylon. And in that last message, I showed you reasons why that's true. And so in the first message, we went back into the history of Babylon, which actually started right after the flood. Story is told in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. And the founder of Babylon was Nimrod. And he was described as a mighty hunter before the Lord. And a better translation of that phrase would would be a mighty rebel against the Lord because Nimrod's name means let us rebel against the Lord. And so Nimrod was the ringleader of this new government and of a new religion that was centered in idolatry. Nimrod defied God because... He wanted to become a king, and so his was the first man-made government that the world has ever seen, and also the first organized man-made religion. So what Nimrod did was he defied God because God gave a plan after the flood for the disbursement of the nations, and he told people to go out and to populate all of the world. But Nimrod was against that plan, and he had a policy of one-world government, and Rather than maintaining this policy of nationalism that was God's intent, Nimrod 
didn't want to do that, and he wanted to support his idea with a religion that would help hold everything together. So Nimrod built a tower. You remember that? Uh, we find in the book of Genesis, he built a tower. And the purpose of that tower was to worship the stars, the sun, the earth. And so he was a worshiper of false deities. And the high priestess of this religion that Nimrod started was his wife. Her name was Semiramis. Semiramis had a son that was named Tammuz, and she claimed that he was miraculously conceived by a sunbeam. And she said that he would be the savior of the world. And that was actually in response to what God said to, uh, to Eve in the Garden of Eden, that, that, her seed, that her seed would rise and so forth. And so she said that her son, Tammuz, was the one who would save the world. Now, if you didn't get the first message, you didn't hear that, then you need to get a copy of it because it'll help you to understand the different false gods that we have throughout the Old Testament. For instance, the worship of Baal and of Ashtoreth are directly tied to that original apostate religion of, of Semiramis and Tammuz. And so the story of those two, uh, Semiramis and Tammuz, is actually, have actually been the center or the beginnings of a mother-son cult worship that permeated all the religious systems of the world, and it's actually the foundation for Roman Catholicism's unholy worship of Mary. Semiramis had a title. She was called the Queen of Heaven. And of course, that is the title that Roman Catholicism gives to Mary. There's actually no basis, Bible basis, for support for the title of Queen of Heaven. And you only find it in the Bible in relation to this false cult worship in the Old Testament. That's the only time that you find the Queen of Heaven. So Babylon then is called the Mother of Harlots because the worship of false gods in the Bible is always referred to as adultery and fornication. For instance, when Israel began to worship the false gods of Baal and Ashtoreth, God accused them of whoredoms. Uh, So they were in spiritual adultery. And when Christianity, and you might want to put that in quotes, it's hard to put things in quotes while you're talking, but Christianity is guilty of adultery when it perpetuates that same old system of worship that ancient Babylon had in this false worship of Mary. And Jesus is actually in that system a replacement for Tammuz, who was claimed to have been born by a sunbeam. So that same old religion is around today. doesn't change much at all. And it's really the basis of apostate ecclesiastical Babylon in the time of tribulation. Now we're going to come back to this a, a little bit more in a later sermon. We're going to talk about Rome's mystical, imaginary, and demonic religion. But we need to move on in our study because next we need to look at you know, we're, we're, we're talking here about the rise of this apostate system, so we want to look at the power of the Roman church. Ecclesiastical Babylon is a very powerful religion. Uh, we could say that it has a lot of power in relation to Satan and demons and all of that because, of course, Satan is a very powerful being. But here I'm speaking of power because Babylon and Rome have always sought to be connected with a government that could control men and force its religion upon people. In ancient Babylon, that was true. You remember when Israel was taken into captivity that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, persecuted Israel, and he tried to force them into his religion. And that story, the story of how he did this, in one way, is demonstrated by those three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And remember how Nebuchadnezzar told them that you will bow down to my image or you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. It also happened with Daniel. Um, When Daniel wanted to pray to Jehovah God, the king of Babylon said, you can't do that. And if you do, actually his advisors said, if you do, then you're going to be thrown into uh, into the lion's den. Then when you come into the New Testament era, you have... Uh, Christians who wouldn't say that Caesar is Lord. And as a follow-through from this old system that came from the, from the ancient times, Rome had this same system of cult, cult worship, the many different gods that they worshipped. And in their religion, Caesar was the high priest of the religion. I mean, that's really what they referred to him as. And so when Christians wouldn't say that Caesar is Lord, then they persecuted Christians and killed them in very inventive ways. Nero, we've told this story before, how that Nero hated Christians so much that he poured tar on them and set them on fire and used them as like lampstands at night to light his gardens. Other ways, uh, Christians were put into sacks with poisonous snakes and thrown in the river. And we're going to talk about martyrs in another lesson that's coming up. But this was religion that's co-joined with political power that's there to enforce its hold upon the people. And that idea is not lost upon apostate Christianity because when Roman Catholicism rose to prominence, it used the same tactic of the state wielding power over its citizens combined with the church. In verse number 3 of our text, it says, The woman, that is ecclesiastical Babylon, is riding upon this scarlet-colored beast. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And riding on that beast is a picture of the apostate church that's supported by the government so that the church actually holds great political power. And during the tribulation period, the Roman church will return to its roots, and once again it will team up with the government, and this time it's the most powerful government that the world has ever seen because it's the government of the Antichrist. So we really need to understand by looking back into history this thirst that Roman Catholicism has always had for power. So we're going to do a little bit of that tonight. We're going to start with the conquest of Constantine. Now, actually, we need to talk about, before we talk about Constantine, we need to go back a little bit further, and we need to speak about the beginnings of Christianity. Who began Christianity? Well, that's not a very hard question to answer, is it? The founder of Christianity is Christ. And when Christ called out 12 apostles, he organized them into a church, and those 12 apostles were the functional or the foundational building blocks of the church with Christ as the head. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, and he said in Ephesians chapter 2, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the church didn't begin on the day of Pentecost, as many people assume. The church was empowered on Pentecost. That happened. But it was actually begun with Christ when Christ called out those 12 apostles. And it was always Christ's intention that he would be the one who's head of the church. And there's only one head of the church. No one takes that position and there's no one who stands in his place. Roman Catholicism has usurped that by calling the Pope the vicar of Christ, which essentially means that he stands in the place of Christ as the head of the church. 
The Pope claims that power because he says that he is a successor to Peter. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, teaches that Peter was the first pope. Only problem is we don't find any of that in the Bible. Peter was not the first pope, and Christ did not make Peter the head of the church. Now, Catholicism claims that Peter's bones are buried in Rome. In fact, he's supposedly buried under this huge canopy that's under the dome of St. Peter's Basilica. Dalton, you give us that picture. Um, This is where they claim that Peter's bones are buried, right underneath of this. In 1968, Pope Paul VI declared that the bones of Peter had been found, and that's where they're buried. Now, the only problem with this is that there isn't an ounce of proof that Peter was ever in Rome. Not much less that he died there. So there, there's no authority in Scripture for Peter as a pope, nor for any successor to the apostles, including Peter. Richard Bennett has a good article on his website, and he speaks of Rome, and he says, the papal church is the heretical schismatic. And what he means by that is that Rome was never a true church. They're a schismatic from the true church. They never did have the true gospel of Christ. Now, there are many people who believe they did, including Protestants. Uh, They believe that there was a time that Roman Catholicism became so corrupt, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly corrupt, or perhaps overwhelmingly obnoxious, I don't know which, but Catholicism needed to be reformed, and they needed to be brought back to that true gospel that they once held. And so the Protestant Reformation was begun in the 16th century as an attempt to return the church to the truth of the gospel. Now, thank God for this. The Reformers searched the Scriptures and they found the true teaching of the gospel of Christ. But Rome never was a true church. They never were the church of Christ. And whether Reformed or unreformed, whether Catholic or Protestant, they're not the church that Christ began. It was the schismatic heretical churches that actually broke away from true churches of Christ and then became the Roman Catholic Church after they teamed up with Constantine and they became the official church of the Roman Empire. So what does Constantine have to do with it all? Well, Constantine was the Roman emperor in the 4th century. And in 312 AD, he was ready to fight a battle. And on the eve of this battle, he knew that if he could win the battle, that he would solidify his control over the nations of the world. And so supposedly, he saw a vision in the sky in which there was a burning cross, and there was an inscription that said, "'By this you shall conquer.'" And so Constantine interpreted that to mean that he should become a Christian. And so after the battle, which he won, he converted to Christianity. And then he made Christianity the state religion. John Phillips makes this statement. It was one of the most faithful single acts ever performed by a human being. Since then, the Roman church has hungered for secular power. An addiction was formed that calls for massive infusions of the imperial drug. And since the 4th century, the Roman church has thirsted for imperial power. And at any time in their history when they didn't have it, they always tried to get it. And that thirst will be assuaged by the Antichrist. And when the Antichrist shows up, the Roman church will lick his boots to try to get that power back. So it was apostate Christianity that actually joined with Constantine. It wasn't the true church. And one of the proofs that it wasn't the true church was because it agreed to become the state church. Now next, then we look at the compromises of apostate Christianity. How did they actually get all this to come together? 
Well, the first compromise was that Christ was dethroned in the church. In 313 AD, an invitation was made for all those Christian churches to come together and to meet with Constantine. And the ones that came are the ones that eventually became the Roman church. And then the other churches stayed away. And the true churches that stayed away are actually the forefathers of the Baptist church that you're sitting in tonight. Well, at this council of the apostate churches, Constantine made a proposal in which he would join the church with the state and thereby all Um, for a time, at least, that he would have all religious and secular power. So Constantine then actually became the head of this new Roman church. And the reason that we have the title today, the Roman Catholic Church, is because of this. The Catholic simply means universal. And at one time, it was the universal church. And that's when it teamed up with the Roman Empire who was, that was, had control of the world at that time. But you can imagine that the pagans that were living at that time were not too keen on giving up all the multiple gods that they had and all their various opinions. Just like the Canaanites, when Israel came in, they weren't anxious to give up their gods, and they didn't say, yeah, sure, come on in. We'll take your God, the only true God. No, they they weren't happy with that at all. And so these pagans that were in the Roman Empire, they weren't happy with taking the Christian God, at least not as God only. So the compromise then was that Christianity actually became the new name for this old Babylonian religion. Never was the Christianity of Christ and the apostles. So the priest of paganism actually became the priest of Christianity. And all the feasts and the festivals and all the idols were just given new names. So it wasn't a huge transition, a great difference in belief and worship. All they needed was new terminology. Now, if you weren't here two weeks ago, again, you need to go back and catch up on this because what I'm going to say next will make much more sense if you have the background of the first message. So you have this Babylonian worship of Semiramis that goes all the way back to ancient Babylon, and now it's been transformed into the worship of Mary. So Mary is Ashtoreth, she is Isis, she is Aphrodite, she's Venus, she's Ishtar. She's just the same old idol with a different name. And so the Mary of the Bible actually got a complete makeover and she became the successor to the Babylonian system. But what's worse in all of this is that Jesus, who is the real savior of the world, became Tammuz. Now they're synonymous. And can you imagine that? I mean, Jesus is Baal, the son of Ashtoreth. Well, nothing could be more blasphemous, I don't think, than to take the name that's above all names. I mean, the name that's the sweetest name of all, the Rose of Sharon, the Bright and Morning Star, Emmanuel, the Lily of the Valley, and take that name and apply it to somebody like Baal. What do you think the Father in Heaven thinks about that? Taking the name of Jesus Christ, of His only begotten Son, and applying it to those same old heathen gods. Well, I don't think there's any way to describe that horror. You know, people think that I'm too hard on Catholicism, but folks, it splits my soul in half to think that Baal could become Jesus. I see Elijah standing on Mount Carmel and calling all the prophets of Roman Catholicism and the Pope to come to this great test to see whose God can call down fire from heaven. And after that contest, I see Elijah doing what he did to the prophets of Baal. He cut them all to pieces with a sword. I don't advocate violence on Roman Catholics. Of course not. We don't live in a theocratic kingdom like was at that time. But you better believe this, folks, that Roman Catholicism has not been shy to shed blood by the tanker loads 
in support of their religious system. Now, we're going to get to those kinds of things. This is all a matter of history. We'll get to that in later messages. But there is a, there's just a whole slew of ancient Babylonian practices that are now a part of the Roman Catholic Church. And the chief of it all is this mother cult worship, this mother-son cult worship of Semiramis and Tammuz that's now called Mary and Jesus. And so the pagan temples of Constantine's time were simply converted into churches. Pagan customs became Christian customs. Pagan pagan idols became the Christian saints. It's just the same old thing masquerading under a different name. Does that help you to understand why Roman Catholicism says that the Bible is not the authority, the final authority. You'll never find Roman Catholicism going back to check the Bible for the things that they do because they tell you the Bible is not the final authority. Their tradition is the final authority. Tradition is king. And indeed it is because it goes back a long, long, long way. It goes all the way back to ancient Babylon and the Tower of Babel and Nimrod who started it all. So we see that then, this... uh, compromise that's made by Roman Catholicism by what was called the Christian churches at that time in order to incorporate what Constantine wanted to do to get a religion and, and, and the government together. Well, the third thing that we need to talk about here is the construct of the apostate church. The Roman Catholic church and its thirst for power goes to any lengths to get it. Now, as wicked as the world is today, one thing that we need to thank God for, and that is that Roman Catholicism does not hold the same power politically that it once had. But when the Antichrist comes to power, he's going to see the same thing that Constantine saw. What did Constantine see? He saw that religion was a way to get to the people. And this apostate church, the Roman church, will see the same thing that those original apostate churches saw. They'll see the Antichrist as a way that they can get back their political power. Again, we're talking about a matter of history. Go back through the Dark Ages, and there you find that the Roman church controlled much of the world. They had great political power, and it was possible even for the Roman church to depose kings. Before a man could become a king, the Roman church had the power of coronation. And so the kings of these different countries actually became puppets in the hand of the church, and so they persecuted anyone that the church told them to persecute. Folks, the Roman church hasn't changed. They're still, they're just biding their time, waiting for the Antichrist to come to power, and they're going to throw the doors open, and they'll say, come on in. We've been waiting for you. Whatever it is that you want, we'll give it. And that takes us back to the compromise. The Roman church does whatever it takes. There's not a doctrine that Roman Catholicism won't alter if it helps them. They've always done that. They tweak things in order to accommodate the Antichrist. That's what they'll do. Now, what we're really looking at is my main point here was to look at the organizational apparatus, the construct of the Roman church. And we find that it's nothing at all like the New Testament. It's nothing like New Testament Christianity. And let me just add to this that the Bible only gives one form of government for the church. And that form is congregational. It's not Presbyterian. And here, I'm not speaking necessarily against Presbyterianism. There is a form of government, of church government, called Presbyterianism. And what it is, is a government of church that's ruled by synods and assemblies and councils that have control over local assemblies. The Lutherans use that, Presbyterians use it, and many others use it as well. And neither is the government of the church by elder rule. A plurality of elders is not to rule the church. The church is to be governed by its membership under the headship of Christ. 
And that's why that you rightly consider me to be the spiritual leader of the church, but I have no ruling power here. I don't have any more power than any other member of the church. I vote in congregational meetings, and my vote counts no more than yours. Now, I will say that if you ignore my counsel, then you would be going against the Bible. You'd be in violation of Scripture. Then you also need to understand this, and people are confused about it as well. The deacon board does not rule the church. I don't even like the term deacon board because it gives people the wrong idea. Deacons do not rule the church. I like to look at it this way. The deacons rule the church only when my decisions are unpopular, when it's convenient. And then I can say, well, the deacons did that. They're the ones that... um, Deacons, I don't rule the church. So church government is not Presbyterian. Uh, It's not presbyteries. It's not councils. It's not elders. It's not deacons. It's not even the pastor of the church. But neither is it prelatical. Well, what's prelatical mean? Well, a prelatical church government is a hierarchical church government like that you have in the Roman church. So if you were to look at the organizational chart of the Roman Catholic Church and you didn't know who it belonged to, you would swear that you were looking at a political government. Now, again, I want to quote from John Phillips. He says, Administratively today, the Roman system is organized like a superstate. At the head of the hierarchy is the pope. Beneath him are the cardinals, who form a kind of papal senate. Next comes the curia, with its departments, tribunals, offices, and commissions. Then follows the papal diplomatic corps, made up of nuncios, internuncios, and apostolic delegates. Still further down the structure of power is the ordinary government and the extraordinary government. Then comes the clergy, the priests, the monks, and nuns. Last of all are the rank and file, the laity. And so if you are in the Roman Catholic Church, above you is all of this superstructure. There's this governmental hierarchy. And last down in the food chain is you. And apparently even further down than you is the Bible because none of that's found in the Bible. That's all. All of this is an invention of apostate Christianity that wants to act like a government even when it can't be. So the authority of the church, the power of of the church was first taken away and given to the emperor and now in the system that they have today the power is given to the pope and what do we find the pope doing today well he's reaching out to try to gather protestants back into the fold and that's why you have and again there's so much of this stuff that we have to talk about in a little bit more later but you have the ecumenical councils and you have the the evangelical and catholics together accord and all of that and that is an attempt by the pope to bring protestant churches back in he wants to bring the eastern orthodox church back in and those negotiations have gone on for many many years he wants to bring the anglicans back in and the ticket to all of this to make everything work is the antichrist now interestingly to show you that rome is political and seeks the power of secular government The Vatican is actually a recognized state. There is no other religion in the world that has this status. The Vatican's not a part of Italy. It's not a part of any government. It has its own government. The Vatican even has its own army. The Vatican has diplomatic immunity. And that's why the Pope is immune from diplomatic prosecution or from from prosecution. Benedict XVI, my opinion, one man's opinion really ought to be brought before a court to have his role in these sex scandals scrutinized. Now, all I can do is read the papers like you do, so I don't have any proof of his involvement, but I promise you that if what's been written about the Pope and 
that I was as close to all of this as Benedict was, I promise you I'd be sitting in a jail cell tonight. I mean, I, that, that's where they'd put me. If a Baptist knew what Benedict knew and he covered it up, folks, we'd be guilty and under lock and key. But then we don't have diplomatic immunity, do we? We're not a secular government. We don't have a desire to be a secular government because our power is the power of the gospel. Our salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. It's not in the church. And we're content to wait until Jesus comes back, until he sets up his government, and then we'll rule with him in perfect holiness and righteousness. Well, I want to stop tonight with a fourth observation about the power of the Roman church, and that's the corruption of the apostate church. So if you have an organization that has an unholy thirst for power and they have a determination to gain it at all costs, what do you think is going to happen to them? Well, you have an atmosphere that's ripe for corruption. And understand, we're not talking about regenerate people. We're not speaking of true Christians. I mean, those who truly believe Roman Catholic doctrine. I mean, you know, if you ask me, are there people in the Roman Catholic Church that are saved? And I'll say, yes, there are. But only if they believe that they got saved exactly the same way that I got saved. They're not going to get saved through the Roman system believing what Roman Catholicism teaches. So if you have an organization set up to reach human goals, then one of the things it's going to do is to prey on innocent people. And if that happens, it really doesn't matter. So it would be a gross understatement for me to say that Roman Catholicism is corrupt because there are no words to describe it. It's, all, it's corrupt, of course, in the way that it, in what it's done to the gospel. There is no gospel in Roman Catholicism. The gospel is good news. That's what the Bible calls it. And the Roman church was bad news from the very beginning. Now, you're, you're all familiar with corruption in the Roman Catholic Church. Your papers have a story about it nearly every day. The abuse of pedophilic, sodomizing, adulterous priests and how they've been shuffled around the system so that people wouldn't find out about it. Roman Catholic Church felt no compunction to expose any of that until someone caught them and it started to come out and people started to tell what they had done Don't ever think for a minute that the greatest concern that Roman Catholicism has for the victims of its corruption. That's not its greatest concern. Its greatest concern is to protect their church. And that's why they go into spin mode about the Pope and his involvement. But let's back up just a little bit. Let's talk about some history. I mean, we we ought not to think that what happens today is some kind of isolated time in Roman Catholic history. I took about 30 seconds to do an internet search, and here's what I came up with. Pope Stephen VI... 896 to 897, had his predecessor, Pope Formosus, exhumed, tried, defingered, briefly reburied, and then thrown in the Tiber. Pope John XII, 937 to 964, gave land to a mistress, murdered several people, and was killed by a man who caught him in bed with his wife. Pope Benedict IX, 1032 to 1044, 1045 and 1047 to 1048, sold the papacy. Pope Urban the sixth, thirteen seventy eight to thirteen eighty nine, complained that he did not hear enough screaming when cardinals who had conspired against him were tortured. Now, what I found in my research is that there are many in the Roman Catholic Church that admit to some things like this, to certain kinds of abuses, but they also say that out of all the popes that Rome has ever had, and that's a lot of popes, I don't remember the exact number right now, but of all the popes that they had, there are only. Ten that could actually call bad popes. Well, that depends on what you call bad, doesn't it? Because for over a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church was at the forefront of inquisitions and the slaughter of innocent people who disagreed with them. 
Those orders came directly from the Pope. Sex scandals have been covered up by the papacy throughout the entire history. W.A. Criswell wrote, Who invented the Inquisition? Who invented the torture chamber in the rack? Who burned at the stake and counted thousands and millions of God's servants on earth? The scarlet whore, dressed in purple, decked with gold and precious stone and pearls, riding in control of the governments of the world. Remember that the next time when you see Pope Benedict XVI doing his blessing on the masses or whatever that stuff they do. Folks, that is the most corrupt religious system in the history of the world. Maybe you won't like this statement, but Islam actually has more integrity than the Roman Catholic Church. You know why I say that? Because at least they've stayed true to one principle. They've got one thing in mind, don't they? But the Roman Catholic Church soaks up anything that helps them accomplish their thirst for power. Well, let me move on. We're going to wind it down. We've got a lot more to go. Ecclesiastical Babylon has a long history. And folks, it's not going away until Christ comes to crush it all. But I digress here, so let's go back to the main point. The reason why I tell you this is this is a warning. We don't come here to play church. And we don't come here to pretend that all is right with the world. And all these religions out there are fine and dandy. You pick your favorite like you pick ice cream. And everybody's going to be all right. And we'll all go to heaven. There's only one truth, and it's God's truth. And it's truth that's revealed in the Bible in no other place. It has to be backed up by the Scriptures, the Holy Word of God. Now, the truth of the matter is, of course, that one of the good news is that Christ came into the world to save us from our sins. And I'm as much a sinner as any of these people that I've told you about tonight. And if not for the grace of God, I would be involved maybe in that system or doing things that are far worse. So I don't stand here holding myself up and say, well, look who I am. I'm smart enough to figure all this thing out, and so I stay away from it. I'm only here by the grace of God. I'm an unworthy sinner deserving of hell. And I just thank God that he opened the eyes of a preacher before me who saw the truth and told me the truth about it. And if you're saved tonight, you thank God that somebody told you the gospel of Jesus Christ because you'd die and go to hell as well. You don't get saved unless you believe the gospel. So I don't preach what I preach tonight to bash Catholicism and say, well, we're saying all these things because we don't like Roman Catholics. No, instead, I I preach this with the compassion of Paul who said many unpopular things in order that he could cut through the fog of all the deceit and preach Christ. The Apostle Paul said such things that they stoned him after he got done preaching. Do you think he was bringing a happy message that fit everybody and tickled everybody's ears? You don't get stoned for things like that. You get stoned for telling people the truth. So we stand in the same way that Paul stood, and we preach Christ. And Christ himself, in fact, stood at the establishment of Jewry and preached things that needed to be preached. And so when he got done, they crucified him. But while he was preaching, he riddled that whole system they had with holes, just like you fired a shotgun at it all or a Gatlin gun. Because Christ would never give ground to a lie. And you know why? It was concern for souls, not protection of their feelings. And so that's why we tell these things. It's concern for souls, not because we want to make people feel good about things. So it's not popular preaching. I realize that. But I don't want to be caught in the same situation that when God spoke to Isaiah... And he said, his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. 
So we want to preach the truth because the truth never hurts anybody. The truth is always good for you. Well, churches today, and it'll come up in our Matthew study, we're on a long, protracted study here. If you read the bulletin this morning, we're on parallel tracks and two different things that we're talking about here. And the world today tries to cover up such things. Religion tries to make everything sweet and nice and, again, tell people we're all on the same path. We're all going to heaven any way that you want to go. Here's what Jesus said. Then said Jesus to those Jews who believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. That's how you know who a true Christian is. Do they continue in Christ's word? And he says, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's what we want to tell people, the truth that frees them from that bondage and corruption of these religious systems that are in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spent together tonight. Lord, I do want to emphasize again that we never say any of these things because we dislike people in other religions, because we think that we're better than they are. Not, not ever. We only say such things because people need to hear the true gospel of Christ. They need to be aware of where these other religious systems come from and and why that we stand against it because it's not in your holy word. There's nothing there at all about the things that we've talked about tonight that these people believe. Lord, help, help them to see the truth and help us to always preach the true gospel of Christ no matter who stands against us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.